Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Media Buddhi A to Z today in which we discuss the letter E. We are discussing four terms today. Equity, diversion, inclusion which are really three different words but they are used together so we are counting that as one term and we are taking them together. I am HR Venkatesh by the way. Hi, I am Divya Chandra. We also have in today's show E for Ethics, Extreme Speech and and eve teasing hi there i'm arches and let's get right into it so what are we starting with today equity diversity inclusion or diversity equity inclusion you know uh, whichever way it's usually formulated it's become a bit of a buzzword especially in corporate settings a lot but it has an application in every sphere of human endeavor and you know when you when i say it's become a buzzword uh, i mean i don't necessarily mean a buzzword in a negative sense obviously because uh buzzwords are sometimes overused and they lose all meaning but i think in this particular case even though it's become a buzzword the three words have not lost all meaning unlike other buzzwords so let me start with equity you know the thing is i always wonder what's the difference between equality and equity and whether there is a significant difference at all but the more i scour the internet the more i see that the two words are used interchangeably sometimes uh, so let's just say that the way i think about it now is equality is the goal whereas equity is a process so to to illustrate with an example equality means everyone in society regardless of their religion caste gender class language region sexual identity disability neurodiversity age and more everybody has the right to the same resources and the same opportunities as everyone else equity is the process by which you achieve this so there's an illustration i like and we can imagine it in our heads imagine there is a tree uh, in a very nice orchard uh, with many spread out branches full of apples it's laden with apples and imagine now that there are several children positioned below these apples you know one child for each apple kind of thing imagine this now for every child there is one apple and technically they can all get that apple that's equality but in reality not all children are of the same height some of them are short some cannot reach it on their own some of them are injured or they're disabled or restricted in some way some of them have poles with a hook in them to pick the fruit so they have tools whereas the others have to jump and how many times can you jump right so how can you ensure all these children get an apple each so that's an that's that's equity that's a very interesting way to look at equality and equity as a goal and process now for diversity which simply means that whether you are an employer or a government or a media organization for that matter you have to design all your policies keeping in mind all the needs of the audience that you serve so which for a government would be all the people that is the entire population now in theory one group of people with a lot of empathy can imagine the needs of another group such as you know men making policies that affect women but in reality we're all humans and we are blinded by our own experiences and positions so in such a case men cannot make policies that affect women so in creating laws one must consult both men women and the wide variety of people who don't fit into the gender spectrum now in a country like india you simply cannot design laws without taking into account the various uh, primary identities people are stuck with 
a muslim or an adivasi or someone from an oppressed caste or someone who's disabled in some way and so on and then we have inclusion now you might have diversity and equity but that won't work unless people are made to feel welcome and valued uh, so not only must you create the conditions for equality through equity and diversity but you must also ensure that people are comfortable with these efforts uh, take for example uh, accessibility for people with disabilities in workplaces now as a as a company or an institution you can talk about diversity and equity by hiring you know diverse group of people and providing them equal access to opportunities you know to uh, uh, to career opportunities in your workplace but then it wouldn't help if you don't have uh, disability access for them to you know easily access the building have uh, disability parking uh, have lifts have disability to- uh, people toilets for people with disabilities so without these uh, without these it wouldn't help basically to achieve equality right and you know another example would be these five star hotels that make you feel unwelcome and this uh, unwelcoming feeling is purely by design it's not like they are you know they're doing something it's just by you know when you enter there's this feel that a particular building or a structure gives you so it's entirely by design and and they do this because the in- incentive is to keep those who cannot afford to pay for it you know they keep them away yeah 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 i mean uh, that's that's a very interesting example it's a it's a negative example of uh, how inclusion uh, shouldn't work right so that that's a good one uh, you know i can talk about a situation that plays out in many households which employ staff such as a cook or a cleaner now in several homes it is unfortunately considered okay to not allow people who work to eat there and even if they do they're asked to eat from a different plate or drink from a different cup or sit on the floor instead of the dining table or use a different bathroom or toilet uh, usually in upper middle class homes there's a separate set of everything and there's a lot to be said here about casteism but i'm actually not going there because i want to focus on the idea of inclusion diversity and equity i feel kind of easier to understand in inclusion so now in theory one might have policies in a house where all the staff are free to use all the same resources as the people who are living in the house but really it's one thing saying yaar up dining table pe khao please zameen pe mat baithna or to say in another language like kannada ne but dining table mein kut kondu tinni nelad mele beda you know something like that but it's another thing for the staff to feel comfortable to do so so uh, each time we tried doing so at home our staff would say something like no we prefer to sit on the floor and eat and i puzzled about it it's only when i realized and i started reading about inclusion that i realized that we hadn't created the conditions for it so one way to deal with it is tell people who eat at the dining table and leave the room so that they can do so without feeling self conscious about it in the beginning so there are little things that you can do to design for inclusion and i just thought i'd tell kind of a personal story right and now just for the clarity of our listeners uh, one reason why we picked these terms for this episode is that the uh, diversity equity inclusion thing plays out in a lot of spheres in india so when it comes to caste the entire reservation or affirmative action debate is a simmering issue and explodes every now and then now when it comes to gender there's this whole issue of who's deciding who's deciding stuff for women if you think about it it's mostly men who do so and they just don't 
understand the needs of women no matter how hard they try and at times a lot of them don't even try also let's remember that our public spaces are not at all designed keeping in mind those who cannot walk or the otherwise disabled and you know if you take the example of ramps on buses and we know that many western countries now have buses which include these ramps so that people on wheelchair specifically can access them and it's not something that we see in india yeah i mean i mean i think increasingly buses are being uh, designed uh, keeping the needs of people on wheelchairs in mind uh, and and it's i've definitely seen it i think in a few places but it's that old mentality why do we have to use the ramp you know it will get spoiled or it'll, it'll, you know then we'll have to get it repaired and so we won't use it at all that mindset is there increasingly even in spaces in india like the metro designed for uh, those who are kind of uh, on wheelchairs it in in practice so in theory all the, all the infrastructure is there in practice we don't have as yet a culture of ensuring that everybody uh you know gets to use it when they want to use it uh with exceptions of course when there are real breakdowns and that kind of thing in any case you know every sphere of endeavor needs us to keep in mind diversity equity inclusion we just briefly talked about you know caste because when you talk about diversity inclusive inclusion and equity with with caste many other things come into the picture as well uh, such as reservation and uh, affirmative action which we will tackle in subsequent episodes so this is certainly not the last word i think we'll keep coming back to the same theme every now and then uh, and also if you're listening and you feel strongly that we did not talk about something important or maybe missed some kind of nuance do write in to us or reach out to us on social media yeah if i have to quickly say something about inclusion like just adding to what venkatesh just said inclusion is about all people feeling that they are welcome and valued you know when people are intentionally included it ensures more power sharing in decision making so that's about these three words and now we come to our next word which is ethics now ethics basically is a very broad term and we apply it in different ways in our daily routine but just for today's discussion we'll focus on ethics and fact checking now before we deep dive into this arches and venkatesh i have a quick question for you do you guys think ethics is subjective or objective or a mix of both well, i think it's both actually you know you have normative ethics where you bring into question what is morally right or wrong and it's therefore quite subjective you know for example a utilitarianism you know where the ethical path is the one that leads to overall well-being and happiness or you have virtue ethics where the ethical path is to be a virtuous person in character uh, so this is uh, these are the subjective normative ethics and then you have applied ethics where you apply ethical theory to real life scenarios and you create commonly accepted standards uh, for example you have journalistic ethics you have bioethics you have business ethics and these are also subjective to some extent because they will be different from place to place you know you have different business ethics in india as compared to the us uh, so but it's less so it's less subjective because you still have larger group of people treating it objectively yeah and i'd also like to add it's a point that you touched upon arches which is that you know uh, there are ethics for groups and there are ethics for individuals but typically what i've noticed is that it's always good to have 
ethics in black and white for a group of people. But in every single case, what tends to happen is that the context creates, uh, you know, a, a situation where sometimes it becomes a dilemma, right? So on an individual basis, uh, you know, the, each individual has a different set of ethics, right? Uh, you know, many people have ethics without thinking about the fact that they have ethics. They just unconsciously have them. So when you have, uh, when you're thrust into situations where you have to choose family over profession uh, or, you know, uh, children over parents, it's your personal value system that kicks in, right? Uh, and when your personal value system kicks in, um, sometimes you will have to privilege one set of ethics over another set of ethics. Uh, I, I give a, a classic intergenerational example, which is, let's say you have parents uh, who are elderly and aged. Let's say you have children who are maybe, you know, seven, eight, nine years old at a very young age. Let's say you're all, you're in two different cities. Now, do you move to take care of your parents uh, and thereby exposing your children to maybe uh, polluted air? Or do you say, okay, you know what? I'll try to make sure that my parents get care, but I will stay in a city which affords children uh, better schooling, better prospects, that kind of thing. Now, this situation comes down to personal ethics. For each person, the answer is going to be different. There is no right or wrong. But when you take it to a group level, you know, ethics have to be more quote-unquote objective because, you know, uh, not having that flexibility, there's, there's a good reason for it because a lot of things weigh on it. I mean, you can't take shortcuts when it comes to verifying something journalistically. You can't take shortcuts when it comes to uh, the scientific process, for example, if you're a scientist. And of course, when it comes to fact-checking, you cannot take shortcuts. You can't say the context. I mean, not always. There are some cases where you can say, well, we could not fact-check this. And so you say this upfront. But you know what, Divya, I think I will uh, let you talk a little bit about how we deal with ethics in the misinformation space now. So now coming back to the fact-checking space, now fact-checking is obviously about the process of debunking, giving context to the viral claims being made. But, it's, but you know, a huge part of it is also about being ethical. I think the dominant fact-checking ethic, which we at Boom follow, and I think every fact-checker should follow in general, is to be transparent and accountable. Now, if you've got some part of a fact-check wrong, one should definitely own it up and be transparent about the correction being made. Also, while doing the fact check, one should always tell how they arrived at the conclusion. I mean, literally telling each and every step so that if the reader wants to fact check on their own, they can do so and arrive at the same conclusion. Because obviously, if it's a fact, it has to be true for everybody and not just, let's say, a set of people. And the transparency and the transparency and uh, you know accountability factor is not just confined to fact checking per se, but also applicable to journalism at large. So let's say, for example, something as basic as taking permission from your source to quote them or reporting the information as is and not hiding some part of it just because, you know, it's in line with your personal opinion. So we should, I mean, we should definitely not let our personal opinions come in the way of fact-checking and journalism. And I just realized since I said fact-checking and journalism, it just made me think if they're gradually becoming two different entities. So, I mean, shouldn't journalistic pieces anyway be factually correct? <laughs> oh, that is a whole topic of discussion by itself. I mean, maybe we could 
take it up in some of our come upcoming episodes but you know i'd like to say on this that in with the internet and the information overload there have been major lapses in judgments by many media outlets and you know this whole rat race to get views and shares have made them less concerned about what the facts are and more concerned about page views and so that is why you know given this situation fact checking has to exist uh, as as a as a separate entity or more like a subset a separate subset of journalism yeah um, you know uh, ethics change over time uh, what's cause for concern in the past is what isn't a cause for concern in the past becomes something very important in the present and we don't know how the future you know how the future is going to change and what ethics uh, what ethical considerations we're going to have uh, when we go forward i think increasingly two aspects are um, environmental our environmental footprint uh, our consumption all of this is going to be a great cause of concern going forward more and more such that you know the next generation or the generation two generations later might look at us and say hey look we we essentially destroyed earth and another area is animal rights increasingly uh, animal rights are being uh, recognized so it's going to impact the food industry in a major way for example uh, we're going to have ethical meat for example and so on and so forth we already have it but it's you know the next level is it becomes mass market so ethics change but back to journalism versus fact checking i mean this <laughs> is funny right journalists say we have you know for any report we say i have verified these facts and i have followed the process so you should trust me because i am a journalist you know so that's that's great in an era of high trust that was great but we are now in a, an era of low trust so fact checkers instead say look i have verified these facts i have followed the process but don't trust us okay just trust our work look at our work because all the facts are there for you you can follow the same process that we followed and perhaps come to the same conclusion so we are saying now that hey when it comes to fact checking you need a slightly higher form of ethics than journalism it's closer to the scientific process where you know verification and replicability of experiments is everything right uh, so that's what i meant by how ethics change over time uh, so fact checking really has has is i, I don't think we are we are appreciating it but we are basically dragging journalism uh, you know towards uh, another set of standards and standards change as i've said also i want to say three more things i mean a, a good fact checker can also be a good stalker right so it's like having a brahmastra so it's not something that fact checkers should not be unaware of we should all be aware of that right any thoughts uh, divya arches yeah yeah no no I, that's a very good point actually yeah because the kind of skills that we pick up uh, while fact checking if they are misutilized you know you could also do a lot of harm uh, i mean if they are mis- misutilized for example for harassment you know you can go really far so uh, while you're a fact checker you should also keep this in mind you know you shouldn't cross over to the dark side <laughs> yeah absolutely very very important uh, we take that seriously here at boom i just want to say a couple of more things uh, since we brought up this whole objectivity subjectivity uh you know uh, just slip it in i read in 2011 exactly 11 years ago in a news magazine that transparency is the new objectivity uh when it comes to journalism and fact checking so uh, what they meant is that you know 
as as uh, journalists and as people who read journalism or view journalism i think everyone knows we we strive to be as objective as possible but objectivity is not a scale that can be measured right uh, there's no like 1% objectivity 99% objectivity it's not something that you can measure like any other scale but transparency is something that you can measure so the idea is now you may or may not be super objective but if you're very transparent people can know where you're coming from i mean this is again assuming that all people are rational and all of that but i thought i'll slip that in and another point i want to slip in and uh, again related to objectivity and subjectivity is uh, you know the writer chandrahas choudhury recently in a podcast podcast another podcast by amit varma seen and unseen a brilliant podcast you should all, you should all check it out so he said that a very deep form of subjectivity is sometimes the best form of objectivity now i was like okay what does this mean and then when i thought about it my mind was blown because what essentially he's saying is that as a journalist you can strive to be impersonal in your tone but if you start saying i i did this i interviewed this person i saw that it injects a little bit of subjectivity it can become self indulgent but if you take the very same piece and write a 5000 word piece and look at examine everything you know examine your own biases in your reporting then it becomes a very deep form of subjectivity which sometimes is the best form of objectivity so i i leave it at that okay. for the moment yeah i think now we're left with two words so which one are we taking up uh, first i think we have extreme speech followed by if teasing yeah so i think let's discuss extreme speech first okay so what is extreme speech well the concept is not far from hate speech which is defined by the un as offensive discourse targeting a group or an individual based on inherent characteristics such as race religion or gender and that may threaten social peace so basically things that may incite hatred animosity and eventually violence now hate speech is a pretty common term but now it's said that extreme speech may be a better way to address this issue why is that so well i i the first time uh, i heard of the term extreme speech was through professor sahana odupa uh, the media media anthropologist at lmu uh, in munich germany and um, we did an event with her here at boom uh, and lmu and she said you know what hate speech is becoming a polarizing term and extremely associated with one side of the political spectrum extreme speech is little better and you know the more i thought about it the more i realized she's right so let's use a parallel example uh, this is nothing to do with extreme speech or hate speech but there's a term uh, that is very very descriptive uh, in 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 when it comes to uh, describing gender inequality and that is toxic masculinity uh, it's a it's it, it shows that masculinity can be toxic many times is this a useful term yes absolutely it is useful is it going to continue to be useful i think the point has been made if you want to bring men folk into the conversation more and more using the term toxic masculinity may not be the best way to go forward you know uh, another way of uh, using uh, saying toxic man- masculinity is to say unhealthy masculinity or healthy masculinity so what then happens is you're reframing the debate into one of health and ill health as opposed to uh you know being good and bad so when you call something toxic or not not good 
you put the other person immediately on the defensive. But if you reframe this debate and say, hey, this is a question of healthy masculinity and unhealthy masculinity, then what ends up happening is that even those who are resistant to the idea get in on the debate and then they start debating how to uh, be less toxic, quote-unquote, right, in their lives. So similarly, you know, um, it might work like this with extreme speech versus hate speech as well, right? When you say hate speech, you know, for many people, it, it's a deal breaker. They stop listening after a while. No, they don't even want to engage with what you're saying. But if you say extreme speech, then what ends up happening is that you're kind of opening their mind. I think we are now in the era where the term extreme speech is way more helpful than hate speech. I'm pretty sure down the line, like five years down the line, even extreme speech would have had its, you know, would have run its course and we'll need other terminology. You know, that that's, that's how it is when it comes to words. That's a pretty good point, actually. It would uh, make it easier to have discussions, especially when you're dealing with people from the other side of the ideology spectrum. Uh, and, you know, speaking of extreme speech, I'd like to present a few tricky situations that we have face, faced in the past and have your views on each of them. You know, the first one is extreme speech versus freedom of speech or freedom of expression. And, you know, sometimes when you are calling out extreme speech or taking action, action against it, you can be accused of trying to curtail freedom of speech and expression. Uh, a popular case would be that of Donald Trump and his Twitter ban. And, uh, you know, Twitter was under fire for curtailing Trump's freedom of expression while they defended it, saying that, you know, he was engaging in call to violence, and which is a form of extreme speech. So they were basically stepping in because of that reason. Right. Now, especially, I mean, if we just take this case into consideration, um, see, there has to be a line drawn on freedom of expression as well, as in, uh, if you're, um, I mean, if what you're saying is inciting violence, people, you know, provoking people to conduct uh, violent activities, then I don't think it's justified. I mean, just because you have a freedom to say anything and everything, I mean, that does not mean that you can, you you know, you start provoking violent activities. I really don't think that is justified. But the pr- problem again arises is that, that who decides this line? Who decides that we have crossed the line? I mean, if tech companies, uh, you know, if they, if they start... Uh, deciding the line or let's say the government start deciding the line there are going to be accusations that okay they are being partial and all that and honestly uh i mean you set up any independent committee or any any such body also of course it's going to involve humans and humans come with some or the other biases some are conscious about them some are not so there has there will be some i do think there will be some sort of subjectivity in this but i mean we really need to decide who decides the line True. And, you know, if what the government wants and what the tech companies want and what the independent committees want, if there are conflicts in what these entities want, then who's who gets the last say, you know? So there's always exactly. that question. And I, I mean, we should give a few examples of what you just said, um, you know, uh, inciting violence. Uh, let's talk about uh, a very infamous speech of Kapil Mishra. Uh, and uh, I think this was just ahead of the daily, uh, the De- Delhi riots in uh, 2020. And uh, in, in the speech, he talks about how, uh, you know, if the police doesn't clear the area uh, where people were protesting against the CAA uh, and uh, how, you know, they would take things in their own hands. And 
this specific video was used by Mark Zuckerberg in a, in a leaked video. It was found that he was refer referencing to this specific video while talking about how you know uh, hate speech can cannot be on the platform or how uh, what a, what hate speech actually is. Uh, so so yeah, so this is one example. Do you have any other example? Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean I, I was just reading up on this and I thought. You know, it's, it's, it'll be good to add some context. So this happened in February 2020. So he issued an ultimatum uh, to protesters who were camping in, in New Delhi. This is the time of the anti-CAA protests, uh, you know. And essentially, he, he, he said something to end this, you know, with the intention to end the agitation and, uh, you know, the threat was to remove them from the protest site and so on and so forth. And the thing is, it, again, there is a thin line sometimes between open incitement to violence and uh, dog whistling, which we discussed in the previous episode. Uh, and so this case, I think, is closer to, um, you know, open incitement of violence, especially to people who are tuned to that frequency. So I think there's a mix of dog whistling as well as uh, as uh, as uh, incitement. And so it it... it is definitely a case of uh, extreme speech, in my opinion. Uh, here again, there might be a little bit of subjectivity involved, but let's do another example. For example, we have um, uh, Yati Narsinghanat using extreme speech to rile up crowds at the Dharam Sansats, right? Uh, we've seen that time and again. Um, is this extreme speech? Yes, I mean, it calls for open violence against another community, right? So it is definitely extreme speech. Is this hate speech? Yes, it is hate speech. Now, in in this case, you know, when it when it becomes a clear call to um, to to violence, you can use the term hate speech. It may be a pretty accurate term. So, I'm not uh, saying that we should replace the term hate speech in every particular instance. In some cases, it's like open and shut, right? Uh, but again, it's a clear. I, I still hear uh, while while. The term hate speech may be applicable, uh, and I concede that I will still use the term personally extreme speech. So this is one example. I'm I'm, I'm sure there are other examples um, yeah. that we can. And it makes right sense. Now. Exactly, and it makes a lot of sense what you just said. You know, especially when you are, say, dealing with someone uh, who may or may not be supportive. You know, is open-minded about it, especially when it comes to Yati Narsinghanand. Uh, so if you use the word hate speech while describing what he said this person maybe wouldn't want to engage any further. Whereas maybe if you use the word extreme speech and uh, if the connotation wasn't there so strong, maybe this person would be ready to engage in a more fruitful discussion and maybe come to some kind of terms or agreement uh, exactly. on the whole discussion. Exactly. So there's another situation uh, that I'd like to present. Uh, it's basically sometimes when you speak out against oppression by a specific group, which is historically, you know, oppressor groups like white men or Brahmin men, then it could be misconstrued as hate speech. For example, uh, the case of Jack Dorsey and the smash Brahmin patriarchy placard. So back in 2018, Jack Dorsey was doing a whole, uh, Jack Dorsey, the Twitter, a former Twitter CEO and uh, founder, he was doing a whole tour of India. And, you know, he was meeting everybody from, you know, Narendra Modi to Dalai Lama to Shah Rukh Khan to a lot of other popular people. And uh, one of those meetings uh, was with a group of activists and journalists and quite a few prominent Indian journalists were there. And uh, during this event, he was holding a placard that said, smash Brahminical patriarchy. 
and the, the photo went viral and you know there was a lot of trolling the the next day and a lot of people accused him of hate speech or extreme speech against brahmins so what do you think on that is it hate speech i love this example it's an outstanding example because it 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 leads to another question when we talk about extreme speech is uh, you know the, the, it's a close uh, uh, re- the, the relation to freedom of expression right now someone might say look my freedom of expression is being impinged uh, and and then someone else might say hey uh, this is extreme speech so you shouldn't be doing it and now we have a third issue which is who gets to like whose speech is allowed and whose speech is not allowed now there are no rules like this but generally speaking there are sometimes unwritten rules uh, and these rules are not rules they're more like guidelines um uh, so they don't have to apply to every particular case there will always be exceptions but generally speaking when a person with a mega loudspeaker or someone who is from a historically privileged group right says something completely dangerous i would say that is extreme speech but sometimes uh you know uh, when someone who is speaking from a potentially not from potentially from a uh, historically underprivileged perspective unless there are of course clear calls to violence sometimes when you say something for agitation it may be allowed so it's 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 kind of back to the context so in this particular case you have someone saying smash brahmanical patriarchy now i understand this uh, you know uh, the caste system has been around for a very long time in india uh, it may have had good intentions in the beginning uh, you can debate on that but it's become entrenched and there's no movement between castes and there are several pillars on which caste works and it has led to a lot of oppression in india right so you can say hey look i am an oppressed person and i'm saying smash brahmanical patriarchy but to a person who's traditionally kind of towed the line on brahmanism who's either a brahmin or who seeks to be brahmanical to them it it can come across as hate speech you know what i mean so um it's again in this particular case it is who is going to be the person who's listening who's the person who is interpreting it based on their own personal experience i mean i personally i would say that this is a not a case of extreme speech uh however uh, there needs to be a huge debate on both sides on how to talk about caste that's one thing i think along with uh, dealing with the with 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 the partition and the divide between hindus and muslims that has that has been widened by politicians caste is another area where we've just not learned the terms to talk to each other we don't even know how to talk to each other you know across the aisle uh, between oppressed castes and oppressive castes you know so i think there are a lot of shades here there's a lot of nuance and i leave it at that and you know I, I, I just want to say one more thing oh, when all of all is said and done back to uh, this whole extreme speech versus hate speech you know there's another way you can talk about hate speech versus extreme speech which is extreme speech could refer to extremism or it could uh, refer to extreme extremity in 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 terms of vocabulary so the access when you think about it uh, you know there's hate speech on one end the other end has to be love right hate versus love 
and and that is not very useful. But the other end of extremity is moderation. So you can always say, hey, you know what, your message may be right, but why don't you moderate your tone? Now, uh, I don't want to be seen as speaking from an from a Brahmic, Brahminical perspective, but there is a case for someone to say, hey, you know what, you want to talk about Brahminical patriarchy? Maybe if you can use it in a slightly less extreme perspective, more in a more moderate way, maybe then there would have been more discussion on this. And similarly, the other way around, uh, I'm, of course, I'm saying all of this, keeping in mind that oppressed castes have been oppressed for centuries and, and you know, definitely they have a right to talk about these things. So that's basically that when it comes to extreme speech and hate speech. My last perspective view on this is that there might be terms where times when we use the term hate speech, but in most cases, the term extreme speech is more preferable. Right, makes sense. Which makes us uh, move to our next word, which is Eve teasing. And I'm sure we don't really have to define this term per se because most of us have come across it and you know know what it means. But still, if I have to put it simply, Eve teasing is basically when a man makes unwanted sexual comments or advances to a woman in public space. So Eve teasing and sexual harassment are terms that you know that are used interchangeably. But uh, one needs to question whether they are synonyms of each other. Now, I mean, if if it were to me, firstly, I think Eve teasing is not really a gender neutral term. I mean, anybody can be sexually harassed, be it men, women, LGBTQ community. And secondly, somehow the general perception of the term Eve teasing has a um, fun, I mean, for the lack of words, fun connotation to it so let's say a woman is walking on the road and a group of men pass some lewd comments people may categorize it as eve teasing but i personally don't think it's just teasing per se it is harassing and i I think that's when we need to really question whether the degree of harassment should matter or not what do you guys think i think in in some ways it does matter uh for example uh, I mean, if teasing, you know, I just saw something that if teasing is uh, defined in, in Wikipedia as a euphemism for sexual harassment. Uh, basically, sexual harassment is too much of a taboo, taboo culturally to be used. So if teasing came up as a term. Uh, but as for the degree of harassment, I think um, if you're looking for justice as a victim, then on legal terms, it would matter, you know, because... Uh, you have two different sections in the IPC for sexual harassment and sexual assault. So you have the exactly, so is it 354 or 354A? So it, it would actually matter, you know, whether it would, if, whether harassment would go into assault. So in some ways it does matter, but I guess when it comes to harassment in general, any act of harassment overall is harassment at the end of the day. But yes, I guess making, calling it Eve teasing, I agree with what you said. It kind of, sweetens the whole uh, ordeal basically makes it sound less uh, less of an ordeal than it is yeah yeah and I, I, you know I, I i grew up in bangalore and uh, the, I, I forever associate the term eve teasing with chennai for some for some reason um and of course it's a it's an issue everywhere sexual harassment is an issue everywhere so i'm obviously uh, i'm just saying that in a slightly flippant way uh, to describe where I came across this term and later on I realized how problematic a term it is and the whole and why is it a problem anyway someone might say okay you know what fine eve teasing is sexual harassment 
what's the big deal? You know, what's the big deal? So the big deal is that using the wrong terms or the wrong word can create the wrong attitude. So as Divya was saying, and as Akshis was saying, it could lead to an idea that, oh, it's not so bad, sexual harassment. Oh, you know, it's all in, in fun. Oh, boys will, boys will be boys. That kind of situation. So using the wrong terms creates the wrong attitude in us. It creates misleading or harmful attitudes within us, which ultimately a harmful attitude leads to harmful behaviors. So it's pretty clear to me that we should consign the term Eve teasing to the dustbin of history and we're just bringing it up here uh, to, to, to say that, really. But having said that, sometimes I'm, I'm really not sure between the difference, uh, the degrees of difference between sexual harassment, sexual abuse, uh, sexual assault, and so on. Yeah, and I mean, since we are discussing these terminologies, I came across a very interesting article on the conversation that uh, basically tells you the difference between sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and rape. So I'll just quickly tell uh, how the article defines these terms. So it mentions that sex, sexual abuse is mainly used to describe behavior towards children and not adults. So basically mistreating children. And for explaining rape, uh, the article quotes FBI's definition, which was released in 2012, uh, which says uh, penetration, no matter how slight of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent, consent of the victim. So it does not really comment on the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim, but it does talk about the consent or basically the lack of it. Now, uh, although sexual assault overlaps with rape, uh, but the term sexual assault includes several criminal acts that are sexual in nature. So the article says that, you know, it, uh, I mean, under sexual assault, there, there could be, let's say, unwanting, touching, kissing, groping, uh, among others. And uh, sexual uh, regarding sexual harassment, it says it's a much broader term uh, than sexual assault. So it basically includes three categories of Im impersonable uh, behavior. So which are sexual coercion, sexual harassment and gender harassment. But just for the clarity of readers, if you guys want to uh, read the article, uh, the link uh, to it will be available in the footnotes. And before I wrap up, more than the terms, I found this last paragraph of the article very, very interesting. So I'll just quote it as is. So it says, uh, finally, we take heed that the society is in a period like no other and one we thought we would never see. People are reflecting on and talking about and considering and reconsidering their experiences and their behavior. Definitions, criminal and otherwise, change with social standards. This time next year, we may be writing a new column. <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, uh, this is super helpful. And um, I thought I, I knew, but I had this nebulous idea. But now it's crystal clear in my head. So that's, that's great uh, personally as well. But uh, absolutely, uh, this year, uh, this time next year, we may be doing a new podcast on this very same topic, right? A podcast episode. Um I just want to add one thing um, on, on the same topic, which is that, you know, the very term sexual harassment I was reading was was not there before the 1975, if I'm not, mis if I'm not mistaken, because it came up um, in, in the United States and then the term was used in 1975 onwards 
uh, and it and it described a set of behaviors which suddenly made sense. You know, so many times we 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 are undergoing things for which we don't have names, and and that's partly why uh, we're doing this podcast. So I like to say that every now and then uh, we're also looking at attitudes and behaviors that have not yet been named and are in the process of being named. And when you name something, you create a kind of description of the problem, then you can think of a solution. But without even a name for the problem, how can you think of a solution? Um, so that's my limited um, you know, end note and a small plug for our podcast, Media Buddhi, A to Z. And I think there are a few words that we would have also liked to have um, sort of added in this particular episode, but we couldn't and we'll come back to them next time round. I, I, I don't know, you know, I'm going to toss you a, a bit of a googly Archis and, and Divya. Uh, this one term that I thought that we should have, which is enforcement directorate, because it completely <laughs> is influencing a lot of politics, I would say, in public life yeah. in India these days. So, I mean, I, I'm not asking you to comment on it. It's just, it's just funny that you know, it's it's tragically funny or whatever it is. It's it's kind of funny that we're, we're talking about the idea of enforcement directorate as a term that we should be discussing. And there are other terms we, we wanted to talk about. Correct me if I'm wrong, elite capture and entitlement and so on and so forth. Yeah, Venkatesh, I, I agree with what you said. Uh, I mean, it, enforcement directorate is something we read so much about in the news. And at this point, you know, we... We can definitely ask why is it even there? What's its main purpose? Because sometimes it does not seem very clear uh, what exactly, you know, what purpose they're serving. It's definitely a term that we can include. And also entitlement is something I want to also discuss. So definitely it opens us up to a potential future e-episode again. Yeah. And now for the next episode, we'll be looking at words starting with the letter F. So if you have any suggestions for any words we should tackle, please write in to us on podcast at boomlife.in. You can subscribe to Boom's podcast on platforms like Apple and Spotify. Thanks for listening.